Gen X Playback, episode number 19. Hi everyone and welcome to Gen X Playback, the show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The biggest podcast in Nesville, Pennsylvania. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And I'm sure again you are wondering, Sean, why are you playing uh, Randy Newman's I Love LA? Yeah, well I was curious. Well, since we are heard in uh, now 36 states in the United States. we picked up a few. Good. Nine countries worldwide. I want to give a special shout out to one of our listeners in Los Angeles, California. Nice. So, um, great to have the West Coast a part of this show. I think I mentioned it in one of the previous episodes, Sean, that it just makes me really happy that that this type of interest in talking about things like this, the, the pop culture, the history, whether it's music, movies, we're going to do sports today, uh, that it's so many people are are on the same page as we are. I, I think to me, it, I, again, week after week, when I just see yet another state or another listener come in from another area, and you know, thanks to you, the listener, we've grown by about 50% here in the last month. So it's it's really growing quickly. And it's just really, it, it just blows my mind. You know, you and I, a couple of schlubs from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and, and that we're be able, being able to have conversations with people around the world. Ah, the power of the internet. You know, the oftentimes, you know, I, I'm guilty of this, you know, from you get to be our age where you start to kind of, as we do here, reminisce about the good old days and say how many things are better. But one thing we did not have back then was the internet. And if you wanted to do a show like this, you had to do what Scott and I did, what, over 20 years ago, where we got a radio station to put us on for a couple years. And, you know, we, we had a, a regional reach, but we certainly were not in 36 different states and nine different countries. No, of course not. I mean, when when I started in radio back in 1996, and then, and then Sean came in well we started doing games together just a couple of years after yeah that. about 97 98 and just the fact that our audience was probably the, the size of a post, postage stamp um elizabethtown pennsylvania our nighttime signal folks was 50 watts and we're out there doing high school football and basketball games i can't imagine the audience was we used to laugh and say that I don't think anybody's listening to us right now anyway, because our, our good friend Annette Boyer, who used to do the games with us, she used to make that comment all the time. She's like, ah, nobody's listening. When when you know, if she would make a mistake on the air. And um so it's just it's really cool to, to kind of go from that to now the uh the, the technology that the internet can provide and the fact that the podcasts have become a very popular thing. Hopefully uh, we're we're giving you something that you can enjoy week after week. Right, and I, I think that we kind of have hit on a bit of a sweet spot here with the Gen X because it, we're such an overlooked generation. You know, I was watching a show just the other night, and they were comparing the uh, the, the beer tastes of uh, baby boomers and millennials. Okay. And they completely just skipped right over Gen X. Yeah. And I thought, w- why do we just get left out when, as Scott has said 
in previous episodes, we're the greatest generation as far as pop culture goes. Yeah, our grandparents, they, that was World War II. And yeah. there aren't too many people that would dispute what they contributed to the world at that time. But, you know, Gen X, we, pro- we brought a lot of things to the table as well. Think about the technology that happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I don't know if you could really match that in any other in any other era of the 20th or the 21st century. Well, I, I feel very fortunate in that I am just young enough where I got technology. Because if you get a couple years older than, than what you, know, you and I and our sister, uh, Lori, uh, you know, is, just a few years more than that, and people really struggle with technology. So I, I'm, I'm not as intuitive as, you know, the kids growing up today are. But if, I, if you show me how to do it, I, I can figure it out, uh, you know. But give me a couple years o- older, and I probably wouldn't be able to do that. Well, I mean, the kids, could they do it? Yes. Do they want to be shown how to do it? Absolutely. I know my, my kids where I think us Gen Xers, we were kind of raised in an era where it was you figure it out sure, kind yeah. of thing. And our kids or my kids struggle with that. Some of them did. I, you know, the older, the older ones weren't, weren't too bad. So, um, but I would say that overall, they would much rather be shown something than to learn how to do it on their own. So, um, we were the can-do generation. That's right. That's right. One, just another great thing that us Gen Xers can do. You know, I, uh, you know, I saw this really kind of funny clip on Instagram. I think Joe Rogan posted it. And it was a, a guy walking down the hallway. And he said, you know, born in 1970. And he hits, bangs into a door, doesn't change his head at all, keeps walking straight forward. Okay. Then it was somebody born in 1980. They hit the door and they kind of look over. And eh, kind of a little pain look, but they keep on moving. Born in 1990, they stop hit the door, start complaining to the door. Born in 2000, they bump into the door uh, and they fall down and start rolling on the floor, but they pull out their phone and take a selfie. <laughs> so I thought that kind of sums it up. That's Gen Xers. We just, we put our head down and we keep going. I think, I think that's a good example. Um, okay, so what is our topic for this week? And I thought we'd go along the, um, the lines of sports because we are airing this uh, as we are recording this right now, it is now February the 10th, 2023. And it's significant for Sean and I because our lifelong favorite football team, the Philadelphia Eagles, are getting ready to play in the Super Bowl, or I sh- maybe we should call it the big game, mm-hmm. against the Kansas City Chiefs. And it really should be a great game. We're not going to get into that, uh, except the fact that Sean and I, as far as I can go back, my first memory of a Philadelphia Eagles game goes back to 1979. So we're talking 44 years ago. I'm 51, so you do the math. I was seven years old. That is my first memory of a NFL football game with the Eagles and actually like paying attention and enjoying what was on the screen. But, uh, you know, 44, 45, 46 years is a long time. It's a lifetime when mm-hmm. the Eagles won the Super Bowl in 2018. We waited our whole lives for that. And so it was quite a significant moment. So it's a big deal. I mean, uh, try and explain that to other people that, you know, whether they're friends or even spouses, that the Eagles have been a part of their life longer than they have. Right. So I think eventually they, 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 get, they grasp it and catch on. But. Well, you, it, you know, it's, it's true in a lot of parts of the country. You know, we obviously, you know, have talked about being in the 36 different states. So, you know, people are going to have their regional teams that they root for. And 
I am not going to say that we're more rabid than other parts of the country, but when you're in the Northeast, especially, sports is a big deal. And, and I, I heard one uh, commentator say part of that is because we have bad weather and we need distractions. And it's, you know, it gets cold in the wintertime and you know, we, we need something to kind of tide us over through those dark months. And, and sports really is something that you kind of pour yourself into. You know, I know Philadelphia Eagle fans get the knock for uh, being called obnoxious. And when you go to an Eagles game, it, it can be that way. Although, I will say, this season I went to an Eagles game where the Eagles played the Tennessee Titans. And I sat down in a section. I'm not a season ticket holder, so we got tickets for one game. I, sat, I was sitting next to a season ticket holder. And as soon as we sat down, one of the things that we've observed this season for the Eagles is they have a punt returner named Britton Covey. Mm-hmm. And Britton, especially early in the season, had this amazing ability to get hit so hard right you swear he was going to get broken in half but he bounced he would always bounce right back but up he again. would always get back up and as soon as we're sitting down we're watching the game i don't know this guy never spoken to him the uh the, the titans punt for the first time and what does the guy next to me say ah, is britain covey going to get killed this time and it was like all of a sudden he's like a friend. Yeah. And we talked the rest of the game. And it's just Eagles fans, you can knock them for being obnoxious, but they're very knowledgeable fans. They know they know what works, they know what doesn't, and they're vocal about it. You know, that sometimes they're vocal to a fault, but they do um they do know what they're talking about when it comes to the Eagles and their opponents. Well, and you know, that second part that you said about their opponents, and that kind of ties into what we're going to talk about tonight, where we're, we're going to talk about um, the, the NFL, you know, larger, you know, we, you have you have your micro and your macro, we're going to be doing more macro where we take a step back and look at, you know, some of the greatest uh, players in NFL history, because, you know, as Eagle fans, we didn't just appreciate the players on our own team, it's something we appreciated the NFL in large. Well, one of the things that I, I wanted to really focus on tonight was the fact that as we're bringing in our NFL Films music here. Which NFL Films, which is from the Philadelphia area. Now, Laurel, New Jersey is yeah. where it began. Ed Sable mm-hmm. and his son, Steve, began NFL Films. And it is really significant as to how football got turned into a theatrical production. How it became the number one sport in the country. And... The cool thing about it was they brought in this music. They had There was a local sportscaster named John Facenda who just had this oh, deep voice. voice. And he read, he read these. You're, you're basically watching vil, uh, football film footage. It's basically poetry is being read behind it. Right. And that's kind of the, uh, I would say that's how NFL films got their you know, gain the reputation. That's how the NFL went from being second to baseball to being the number one sport in the United States. Sure, it definitely played into it. And of course, because NFL Films is from the Philadelphia area, they would use local broadcasters. You know, then after John Facenda, you know, the, the great, the late, great Harry Callis, who you and I, you know, adored as the voice of the Philadelphia Phillies, became the voice of NFL Films. Yes. And now former Phillies broadcaster Scott Graham is the voice of NFL Films. That's correct. And a lot of Philly tied athletes such as Ron Jaworski uh, did a lot of work for NFL Films. We're going to talk about Jaws a little bit tonight. But I think that... Jaws is on your list? Jaws is certainly on my okay. list. Um, but 
the reason that I wanted to talk about quarterbacks is, especially when it applies to Gen X, and you can really say, and, I'm, and we're going to tie this together. Do we even say what the topic was? Our favorite Gen X quarterbacks. Okay. So our favorite Gen X quarterbacks, and we're going to talk about not only the Gen X quarterbacks that are our favorites, but we, I think it would be a, a disservice if we didn't mention a lot of other, you know, a lot of other players, a lot of other quarterbacks that were so influential to the NFL and the quarterback position. Because think back to the 1970s, the quarterback position, he was not the guy who was going to carry a team on his shoulders game after game after game. Most quarterbacks in the 70s were facilitators. They managed the game. If you look at the stats from the uh, you know the quarterbacks of the 70s who are in the Hall of Fame, they wouldn't even be a starter today if you're just going strictly off the numbers. Well, based on the music in the background, I almost expected Scott to say, back in the 1970s, the quarterback was not a key position. In the 1970s, the Minnesota Vikings did not play in a dome. They played in the snow, on the grass, in the frozen fields of Minnesota. Yeah, you know, that whole uh, that frozen tundra line that you still hear all the time associated with Green Bay, that was directly from John Facenda and, uh, you know, and NFL Films' piece on the... Uh, I guess it was with the the NFL championship game between the uh, the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys. And the Dallas Cowboys, yeah. yeah, that was the famous Bart Starr mm-hmm. quarterback sneak into the end zone, where Cowboy fans will tell you that uh, what was his name, Jerry Kramer, false Jerry started. Kramer. <laughs> but anyway, um, Cowboy fans. So, yeah, and we're going to talk about uh, 1983 being such an important year for the quarterback position, not only for all of the NFL uh, for Gen X, for the 80s, for the 90s, we started, we started to see the evolution of the quarterback position and how right now, today, if you don't have a great quarterback, you're probably not going to go very far. And that's, the way that, that's what the NFL has evolved into. Well, well with, you know, back in prior to the 1980s, you know, the, the rules were different. You know, where it used to be that with a wide receiver, we got Johnny Carson come out now. <laughs> That's not the right song. <laughs> All right. So with the, you know, it used to be that a wide receiver had a hard time getting off the line because the cornerbacks could jam them. So now they get, you know, a little five yard buffer where they, they, they're untouched. And, um, well, I guess they have a little part where they, they can like kind of like jam a little bit. But for the most part, you have to kind of let these guys run. Sure. And as a result, what a quarterback would do, you know, you needed that tough guy who was just going to stand there in the pocket because he had to wait a while for his wide receiver to work his way open. Well, not only that, but they also had to, uh, you know, the, the quarterbacks threw the ball much more downfield yeah. than what they did today. And, and we'll we'll talk about that transition from – the downfield thrower where quarterbacks were looking 15, 20, 25 yards downfield to complete passes and are throwing into heavy coverage. So it wasn't uncommon for a good quarterback to have almost as many interceptions as he had touchdowns. When you look at um, Terry Bradshaw in 1979, when the Steelers went from being uh, known as a defensive team to having that offense with Lynn Swan and John Stallworth and Franco Harris and Bradshaw, and they they could overpower teams with their offense 
And Terry Bradshaw threw, I think he led the league with like 28 touchdown passes, but he also threw 20 interceptions. So you're not talking about a guy who, you know, like today's standards, where the numbers are like so skewed from one to the other, where if a guy throws eight or nine interceptions, that's considered a bad season now. Vinny Testaverde in his rookie year threw 35 interceptions. That's hard to do. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we are going to uh, go back to, I know you kind of broke your list down the way I did. So I'll, I'll let you go first and, okay. and just kind of talk about maybe some of your favorite quarterbacks of the 70s. Oh, the 70s? Well, I didn't necessarily – I ranked them from 1 to 10. Okay. Well, go ahead. Why don't you go ahead and do your list then? Okay. So I'll give you a, a, I'll give you my top 10, and then I have four honorable mentions. And, okay. and I'm assuming we're going to have a lot of overlap. I, I'd be surprised if our lists aren't very similar. Okay. Uh, so I'll leave it up to you to decide if you want to comment uh, as, as we're going along. Sure. Or, or if you just want me to do the list, and then we can – you know, yours, however you want to do it. Okay. So at number 10, I, I went to the 90s. And it's a quarterback, when you talk about a quarterback that doesn't necessarily have a lot of, of high, gaudy numbers, but has a lot of wins, and that would be Troy Aikman. Okay. So Troy Aikman, you know, probably if you look at his stats, is not nearly as impressive as some of the other people that you're going to see on your list. Maybe not as impressive as some people that get left off the list. And I don't know, I, did it surprise you that, that Troy ended up going into the Hall of Fame as quickly as he did? As quickly, yes, yeah. it did. However, when I think of the 1990s, Troy Aikman's name is one of the first names that pops into my head. It is, and when I made, when I made my list of 90s quarterbacks, he was like the third name that, that popped into my, right. my head as well. So I'm just kind of looking down at his numbers, uh, career record, 94 wins. Uh, just shy of 100. 100 really is kind of that gold standard for a really elite quarterback. So he only played until he was 34. So you're only talking roughly 11 seasons as a quarterback. Well, he had concussion issues. He did. And I think, unfortunately for him, the last three seasons of his career really worked at, you know, that they kind of hurt his overall numbers. Uh, Back in the day, back when Troy Aikman was a quarterback, it was significant for a quarterback. If he threw for more than 30,000 career yards, that was considered a major accomplishment. He did throw just under 33,000 yards. So he did he did pile up some good numbers, um, but he wasn't necessarily known because they were so balanced. Right, right. They, and, you know, he was definitely more of an old-school quarterback in a lot of ways. He it almost harkened back to, I don't want to say necessarily the 70s, but it, it, he kind of reminded you of another quarterback who we'll get to later on, you know, kind of a Terry Bradshaw, who needed to kind of execute. You know, you, you weren't necessarily going to have somebody that was putting up the huge numbers, but when you needed him to stand in the pocket and throw deep to Michael Irvin, he could get it done. He was not the kind of guy that was going to uh, buckle under pressure. And the Cowboys and 49ers were known to have some unbelievable playoff matchups against each other in the early 90s. And for the longest time, the knock on Steve Young was that he couldn't get past the Cowboys. Right. And that was Troy Aikman. It was Troy Aikman, sure. So, uh, you know, finally, Steve Young was finally able to do that in 1994, and they ended up going on to win the Super Bowl that year. But, um, yeah, Troy Aikman and the Cowboys, much as I hate to say it, being an Eagles fan, right. but uh, they were – to, to steal a quote from you know an Eagles executive, they were the gold standard in the early 90s. And for me, this 
personally says a lot about how much respect I have for, for Troy Aikman because as an Eagles fan, I despise the Cowboys. Right. And so, and especially during that era because Troy would carve them up. So I, I did not like him at all. But now, you know, with, with you know, some time passing, um, I, I think he just kind of stands out. And uh, I, I, I like the fact that he's had a nice career as a broadcaster as well. Um, I actually like him as a broadcaster. I know that's not what we're talking about here. But, you know, the fact that he moved in right away and, and as he breaks down the game, you kind of see the, the the process that he would have had as a quarterback. And I don't know, I've, just, I've gained some respect for him. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That's a good first one. All right. So that's number 10. Number nine is a player that uh, he, he kind of straddles both the 70s and the 80s. So he put up some big numbers in the 70s, but he's really no more as an 80s quarterback. And that would be Dan Fouts. Okay. Uh, the... the the guy who was pulling the trigger for Air Coriel in San Diego with the Chargers. Absolutely. And once Air Coriel started to really take shape, and um, the knock on Fouts as far as whether or not he was going to get into the Hall of Fame, and we mentioned that Troy Aikman had such a great record overall. And even it would have been even better if he hadn't gotten hurt and fallen on hard times. The last three years really hurt that winning percentage. Dan Fouts is just barely above 500 as a quarterback. So he was a great quarterback that didn't necessarily play on great teams. Now, they had a couple of shots. I mean, they they got really close a couple of times in his career. And that was when, um, you know, you're talking about a guy who twice uh, was the the MVP and made a bunch of Pro Bowls, Mm -hmm. threw for a boatload of yards. Huge numbers. uh, Kind of the opposite of Troy. Right. In a way. So Troy had did not have the big stats, but had all the victories. Dan was kind of the other way. He was that that guy who just put up the gaudy numbers. You know, he had incredible weapons around him, but he was not, as you said, not on a great team because historically the Chargers always had poor defenses. Yeah. And yeah, because you mentioned the offense. He had Kellen Winslow, mm-hmm. one of the best tight ends of his era. Mm-hmm. You had John Jefferson, Wes Chandler, Charlie Joyner. Right. When Charlie, jo- I believe when Charlie Joyner retired, he was the all-time receptions leader. So these <laughs> these were guys who could get open in an era where that was really hard. Right. And when you would go back and watch some of these film clips of Fouts throwing, uh, you know that was really the beauty of Air Coriel is that it was downfield football. I mean, he wasn't just tossing it on these short gainers. It was 20, 30, 40, 50 yards downfield, and they were just attacking the defense mm-hmm. one play after another. And even if you weren't a fan of the Chargers, it was still a lot of fun to watch. It was kind of like the precursor to video games. So, you know, this is Gen X playback, right? So we like to delve into the pop culture. And for me the Chargers were part of that pop culture because they were a fun team to watch where even though um, on the East Coast, I'm an Eagles fan, I kind of like that, that uh, you know, defense first type of football, that smash mouth as we do, you know, we as an Eagles fan, bring up the name Brian Dawkins and it'll bring a tear to most Eagles fans' eyes. It's, it's just, that's, that's what we like. You right. know, we, we like that style. But I was attracted to watch the Chargers and I would watch them whenever I could. They were fun to watch. One of my most memorable games as a kid was in 1981. The Chargers and the Dolphins were playing, and I believe that game went to like double or triple overtime. It was like the longest played game in NFL history at that point. That, that was with that famous, was it the Statue of Liberty play that they pulled off in that in that game? 
Uh, I, I believe no, it's, no it's, it was it was the hook and ladder play. Okay, the hook and ladder that yeah. was where they famously had to help Kellen Winslow yes. off the field. Yep. Because he was so exhausted after, I think he caught like I don't know, thirteen or fourteen catches yeah. in that game. Uh, that was really one of my first really strong memories mm-hmm. of NFL playoff football. Right, and so that's kind of what you see today. You know, it's it's part of the reason why the NFL has now overtaken every other sport and become so exciting. Where even if the Eagles were not playing on Sunday in in the Super Bowl, it's still a, it's almost like a national holiday right now, where people go over and have their Super Bowl parties. I mean. I've been doing that for years and years with with a group of people where that's just kind of what you do. And it's a big event because it's the biggest sport in the country and you get together. Yeah. And I just want to point out two things to show people how much the position has changed over the years. Uh, Two of those numbers. Now, Fouts threw for a ton of yards for 43,000 yards in his career. That's a lot. His completion percentage was only 58%. And even though he threw 254 touchdowns, he threw 242 interceptions in his career. And we're talking about a guy who's in the Hall of Fame. So just goes to show how much harder it was to throw the ball because, as you mentioned, Sean, back then the coverages were allowed to do – it was more difficult to get right. open. Right. So when you were throwing, you – there was – that's why if you look at the all-time single-season interceptions leaders – Hardly any of them are today, because it's some you know a guy usually leads the league if he has six, uh, you know, or seven interceptions in a year. Whereas if you go back to like 1980, you have a guy like Lester Hayes That's or Everson Walls. These guys were getting 12, 13 picks a year. I think the uh, NFL record is 14, and that was set back in the 1950s. Yeah, because Lester Hayes is basically famous for three things: uh, interceptions. Yes. Stick them. Lots of it. And stick them, you know, if you, people remember, it's not illegal, but they put the sticky substance all over their body. And basically, you know, the ball can stick to their elbow as as they were playing defense. And then the third thing was the fact that he would just manhandle people. You know, yeah. he, he he would would be all over them, which today would immediately be pass interference. And one of the first really rules changes that landed in favor of offensive players for wide receivers I believe they call that the Mel Blunt rule because one of the first things that Mel Blunt used to do was he was famous for like clocking the guy in the head yeah. before he would even break on his route. So yeah. the NFL started making it harder and harder for de- defensive players to, uh, to, to be physical with wide receivers because as you and I just talked about, watching the Chargers for kids for us was really fun. Mm-hmm. I would imagine as a Chargers fan it was probably maddening because they – yeah, you have this great offense, and you're putting up 30 points, but you're giving up 35. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't care whether they won or they lost, other than when they were in the playoffs, I liked them to win so they could keep going just because right. I like to watch them. But, yeah, so for me, you know, Dan Fouts is definitely a, a name that I don't know if a lot of people still think of Dan Fouts as, as great as what he was, but at the time, I mean, he, he was definitely highly regarded. Sure, absolutely. He even played into uh, 1983 uh, with the famous – 1983 NFL draft where seven quarterbacks were taken in the first round. So uh, a lot of it had to do because there was talk that uh, teams were trying to get John Elway. And one of the teams that was heavily being considered was the San Diego Chargers. And had Dan Fouts not re-signed with the Chargers and gotten an extension on his contract, the Chargers were prepared to put in a trade for John Elway. So if you're a Chargers fan, 
think about that and what the potential of that could have been years down the road. Now, I do not have the 83 draft in front of me. I don't know if, if you do or not. But did, did the Chargers end up taking some guy named like Billy Ray Smith, a linebacker? I believe you're correct. I think it was Billy Ray Smith. Who would have been like a top 10 pick, mm-hmm. you know, highly regarded linebacker and just had next to no career. And, you know, spoiler alert, but John Elway's on my list because he is one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. Okay. So anyway, so interesting that you bring up the 1983 draft because the next quarterback on my list in at number eight was part of that class. And that would be from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jim Kelly. Yeah, that good one. Um, like you said, from Pittsburgh, actually went down south and played. Miami. Yeah, I wondered how that happened, where a kid from Pittsburgh ends up going all the way down to play for Howard Schnellenberger in, in the University of Miami. Well, back during that time, uh, you know, Joe Paterno at Penn State wanted to make every quarterback a linebacker. Yes, that's true. So, I, you know, I, I don't know if he was part of that crew or not, because, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Jim Kelly looked like a, a Western PA linebacker. So, I, I before you move on, I have to really – Credit you, you pulled that Billy Ray Smith out. Is that right? From the University of Arkansas linebacker, Billy Ray Smith, number five pick. Okay. So I have the draft up. So, um, yeah, that's impressive. All right, keep going. Well, you know, in a previous episode, Scott talked about how our eighth grade teacher, uh, Jay Wanger, had a bunch of the guys, maybe 10 of us, uh, involved in an NFL draft. Well, and in my class was we did the 1983 draft. Okay. And I, you know, I must admit, I did win that draft. There you go. And so the, because, you know, we were doing our, we did our projections and we drafted as if we were the GMs. And um, it's funny because one of my classmates, who you remember, Jeremy Lehman, actually I ran into him not that long ago. And we were reminiscing, kind of as we do in Gen X playback. Sure. And of course, you know, we go back to, oh, you remember that, that, 1983 draft we did for in Mr. Wanger's class. And Jeremy goes, you won that draft, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you bet your bottom dollar <laughs> you better I did. believe it. I was being very, very humble, not bringing up, but he did. But that's correct. I, I did win that one. Okay. All right. Uh, so anyway, Jim so Kelly. Jim Kelly, um, you know, he is, as people know, he's he, he played, you know, his career for the Buffalo Bills, although he started in the USFL. Correct. Because he did not want to play for Buffalo. Um but eventually he makes his way to Buffalo and is known for losing four Super Bowls. Um, he did. And unfortunately, he is one of the, the most famous Super Bowls against the New York Giants where it uh, Scott Norwood uh, misses a field goal in the last second, which would have won for the Bills. And, you know, for me, it's so unfortunate for Jim Kelly because while he's number eight on my list, he easily could have been higher had he just won that game. And it wasn't his fault. It you know here in you know 2023, leading up to the Super Bowl, we had Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs lead his team down the field and get in field goal range, and and his field goal kicker converts. He goes to the Super Bowl. No, had he missed, no one's going to remember the heroics. Uh, you know, of uh, uh, Patrick Mahomes. Well, sure. And there was a, a young quarterback in 2001 by the name of Tom Brady. That did the same thing, and then a couple of years later, he did it again, where the he got him into field goal position, and then Adam Vinatieri was the one who kicked the winning the winning points, just like Scott Norwood. If he makes that field goal, Jim Kelly's a hero. Mm-hmm. It, it it always often surprises me, and it, we even talked about it here with these the you know your first couple of choices, how much wins and losses are associated with the quarterback, but you never do that with any other position in football, right? 
Right, because it's a team sport. Exactly. But like, yet, what did Jim Kelly have to do with Scott Norwood missing the field goal? It, no. No, he did his job right up until the point it needed to be done. Sure. and uh, But yet, if you go into football reference, the quarterback position is the only one where wins and losses are part of his statistics. Right. And it factors in on my list somewhat. Uh, you know, not completely, because I do have some non-Super Bowl winners, obviously like Jim Kelly. But it's, you are correct. That is the one and only position where you are judged by your wins and losses. And one of the things I, that when you talked about Jim Kelly, to me, and he's on my, he's part of my list as well. One of the things that I liked about Jim Kelly, he was really accurate. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, when I talked about um, Dan Fouts having a 58%, you know, career completion percentage, uh, Jim Kelly was consistently over 60 62, 63, which back then, that was amazingly accurate. Now, he had some good weapons. I mean, you know, like Andre Risen was there and James Lofton. You know, he's out Thurman Thomas out of the backfield. So he had some good people to throw to. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, they were very, I'm just looking at his stats from uh, the 1990s on when they went to the Super Bowl and he had a, you know, 12-2 and record, but we're talking 63% completion percentage, which led the league. Uh, 24 touchdowns, only nine interceptions, which was also one of the best ratios in football at that time. Because, as I said before, interceptions were more common because of coverage being different than than what it is today. Right now, it, when you're throwing, you, I watch any any team play, and you watch some of these wide receivers, and it's like, man, this looks like college that these wide receivers are so open. It certainly wasn't the case. And when you had a guy like an Andre Reed who was – Oh, I called him Andre Risen. Sorry, yeah, Andre okay. Reed, you're right. But Andre, you know, a guy like an Andre Reed, that's how you really could tell the Jerry Rices of the world. When they had just one or two yards separation, that was special. And now guys are like 10 yards open or sure. 15 yards open. So it was a different era. And when a guy could have a completion percentage that high, it really stood out compared to the other quarterbacks. Right. So in, in that era, you would – we're not doing – we're not doing uh, defensive backs, but you would have the the star defensive backs, the Deion Sanders of the world, and they you know they were shut down corners. Uh, based on the rules, they could be shut down corners. Where now, you don't really have that, and it's it's kind of unfair for the defensive backs, you know, because they, no matter how great they are, they still get thrown on. And I'm not going to denigrate what the receivers that we have in this era are doing, because they're great. And, and they are, in a lot of ways, they have better hands, I think, than what they used to, just because you know I've seen them work with the jugs guns. and sure. So you see the spectacular one-handed catches. and So it's not as if the receivers have it easy, but there's more opportunity for the passing game. Absolutely. Okay. Jim Kelly, I like that. Okay, so Jim Kelly, and number seven is a quarterback that you referenced earlier, and that would be Steve Young uh, from the San Francisco 49ers. Okay. And Steve Young, you know, is somebody that he, I think sometimes people forget how great he was. And not just that he was a great quarterback, he had a lot of wins, he won a Super Bowl, but he really kind of was the prototype of what you see today with the, the quarterback that is very, not just mobile, because in the past you would have quarterbacks that could scramble. But Steve Young was really somebody, especially when he first came out, could run equally as well as what he could throw. The one thing I would give Steve Young is he is a study in persistence. He had a great college career at BYU. Mm -hmm. 
opts to go to the USFL like Jim Kelly does and, you know, some other quarterbacks that are out there, Doug Flutie ended up going to the USFL and had, he signed that 40 year, $40 million contract with the LA express, correct? Which LA had to, they had to honor that contract. I don't know if you knew that. I, but, I didn't. I just assumed they went bankrupt and didn't pay him. But that contract was guaranteed. So Steve Young ended up getting that 40-year, 40, 4-0, $40 million contract. All right, so the USFL folds. He didn't play particularly well for LA. He goes to Tampa Bay, plays for the Bucks, and the Bucks were just an awful team. And he was running for dear life. He was... Uh, very undisciplined mm-hmm. as a, as a player, and it wasn't until Bill Walsh brought him into the 49ers and he started to back up Joe Montana that he uh, started to kind of hone his game a little bit. But uh, Bill Walsh was still partial to Montana. I mean, he's Joe Montana, sure. And Steve Young really had to wait a long time to get his opportunity, but to his credit, he did, and then. He gets to become a starting quarterback, runs into the wall that is the Dallas Cowboys, which you know keeps him from greatness for yet a couple more years. They finally get to the Super Bowl and play the Chargers in 94, 90, you know, 95 Super Bowl season. And uh, you know, that's when he's finally able to kind of redeem himself and get that, you know, he famously stands there and says, you know, take the monkey off mm-hmm. my back. To credit him, he just he kept constantly grinding to get better. And his game evolved. You literally watched him become more accurate. You watched him become more selective instead of running every time. Sure. And he he really did develop into what was a Hall of Fame quarterback. He did. And it's Scott, you're completely correct when, when you say how undisciplined he was at the beginning of his career. I think anybody that watched Steve Young with Tampa Bay would have been stunned at the Steve Young that we saw at the end of his career. And it's hard to really describe just how bad the Buccaneers were at that point. And and he he did not allow things to develop. I don't know if it's because he didn't trust his offensive line. I don't know if guys couldn't get open. But it, it on, usually was it, it appeared that you know he would come out. He he would have one read. If if that the play which was called wasn't there, he just took off. Yeah, um, good choice, uh, Steve Young, Super Bowl champion, uh, Hall of Famer. Yeah. So right, all right. So that's number seven. Now number six on my list, probably uh, if Troy Aikman wasn't your quarterback of the 90s, well, this guy was, and that'd be Brett Favre. Um, kind of a, of a gunslinger, if there ever was a gunslinger. Uh, the, um, the bulk of his career with the Green Bay Packers, that's where he you know, won Super Bowls. He you know, played for, you know, for the Jets for a while, played for the Vikings, actually broke into the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons and yes. never really played. But... Uh, you want to talk about numbers. You know, Brett Favre, he put up numbers. Wasn't afraid to throw an interception from time to time. He was could be a bit of a wild man, but supremely talented, uh, lots of wins. And I, th- I think, you know, was John Madden's all-time favorite player because he just gushed over the guy. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, and, and again, we're throwing wins and losses in with the quarterback, but it, it's hard to not point out the fact that he has 186 career victories as an NFL quarterback, which... Just goes to show not only longevity, but it goes to show how talented he was. Yeah, he kind of possessed every everything you looked for in a quarterback, especially for that era. Mm-hmm. He was mobile enough to escape a pass rush. He had a really, really strong arm. 
And he just kind of had this fun way of going about things, which I knew at times drove his head coach, Mike Holmgren, crazy. Would have driven me crazy. Uh, there's one NFL films scene where Holmgren is just fed up. And he turns to, I don't, I can't remember which assistant coach it was, but he's like, get him out of there. <laughs> and then, so the guy's getting ready to walk and go, whoever the backup was, to tap him to go into the game. And then Holmgren stops him. He's like, oh, no, 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 just keep him out there. It's probably, it's probably Doug Peterson or somebody <laughs> like that. Just, But, I, you know, it's just, he drove Mike Holmgren crazy, but it took a Mike Holmgren type coach. And even when you go back, Brett Favre reminds me a lot of what Terry Bradshaw yeah. could have been yeah. as a player because now Terry Bradshaw ended up becoming a great signal caller. And back then, quarterbacks called the plays. Um, Terry Bradshaw played under Chuck Knoll with the Steelers. And Chuck Knoll was a tough taskmaster. That's why the defensive players loved him so much, because it was regimented. The offensive players, not so much. Terry Bradshaw and Chuck Knoll, they butted heads basically for 13, 14 years. And uh, I think Terry Bradshaw always looked at Brett Favre with a little bit of envy because, yeah, Holmgren was tough on Favre, but yet he also didn't take away the playfulness that Brett Favre had. And I think Bradshaw always, because he always commented and said, I wished I would have been allowed to have more fun out there. Right. When he was in college, he had so much fun. And then when he went to the NFL, you know, he was he was depressed, you know, playing the game of football for a long time. Well, you know, Brett Favre kind of had that good old boy um, uh, persona that, you know, kind of came across as maybe not the brightest bulb out there. But he was a lot smarter than what he let on. And one of the things about the quarterback position where either you have this ability to read a defense or you don't. It's very hard to learn. You know, I remember Trent Dilfer, former NFL quarterback, former first round pick. He, you know, he said that he would, he could never get it. He just couldn't read the defense fast enough. He was an incredibly intelligent person. And, he, but he said that I just struggled to like read it immediately. And then you get some other guys like a Brett Favre who just had that ability to be able, you know, he could, he could turn his back and they would write the play on the, on the blackboard and he could turn right and he could find it right away. And I think, um, I don't know if there's any other NFL player. He may be the only NFL player to win the MVP award three consecutive years. I don't, I don't know. I know there've been guys that have gone on to win three or more most valuable players in football, but I don't know if anybody did it three consecutive years and he did it 95, 96 and 97. Of course, the Packers won the Super Bowl after the 1996 season. So he was definitely on top of his game at that point. 1997, they go back to the Super Bowl and only to lose to a, a you know a team, a Denver Bronco team uh, that was quarterbacked by John Elway. Right, right. So Terry Brad, or I'm sorry, number six is Brett Favre. Number five is Terry Bradshaw. Interesting how you pair them together, because in my mind. They're kind of similar in a lot of ways. You know, Terry Bradshaw, for those of you who don't know, who only think Terry Bradshaw is the funny old guy on, um, you know, Fox, uh, you know, pregame and, and halftime and postgame shows, he was the first quarterback to win four Super Bowls for the mm -hmm. Pittsburgh Steelers, came into the league, first overall pick in the draft, Louisiana State, uh, a, a wild man, kind of a, a fish out of water going from the, down south to up in Western PA and really struggled. He really struggled to the point where 
they the team the Steelers and Bradshaw kind of gave up on each other at one point. The Chuck Knoll had made the decision to bench Bradshaw, and he went with a a quarterback by the name of Junior Gilliam, who ended up being the starting quarterback. And a lot of the fans were not opposed to it. They were in support of of them making this change because Bradshaw at this point was the Steelers were winning. But yet he was, uh, his numbers were, uh, I'll just look at it, in 1972, his completion percentage, 47%. 1973, completion percentage, 49%. 1974, completion percentage, 45%. That's three straight years. But yet you look at the record, 11-3, 8-1, 5-2. I mean, they were winning because of their defense. Yeah, you're right, because the Terry Bradshaw detractors will tell you, well, Terry had nothing to do with that team. It was a team that may have been the most talented group collection of NFL players in history. I mean, Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer on defense. We didn't even talk about the great Penn Stater Jack Ham, you know, at, at linebacker. You know, we have, you know, Mean Joe Green, one of the most recognizable, famous athletes of the 1970s, who can forget his co-commercials. Well, I, I believe it's the 1974 NFL draft. I think the Pittsburgh Steelers still hold the record for the most Hall of Famers taken in one draft. So how many was that? I think it was number? five. So it would have been. So who was first? It was Swan. Swan. So it was Jack Ham. Uh, Lambert. Jack Lambert was in that one. Okay, so he was like the second runner. You know what? I remember reading Sports Illustrated, and it was a story in Jack Lambert, and they who I, who I share a birthday with. By oh, the way. okay. Yeah. And so the. Um, you know, for those of you who remember, you know Jack Lambert was this intense middle linebacker for the Steelers. He he went where didn't wear his teeth while he played, so it looked like he had fangs. Right, and he'd stomp his feet up and down as he'd wait for the play to come in. Old school linebacker, and very intimidating. I mean, that's that's what the NFL was, and and he was one of the main intimidators. And in the article, they interviewed Lynn Swan, and Swan said that Lambert almost every day walks up and tells me I should have been number one. <laughs> Even though Swung is the Hall of Fame, I should have been drafted ahead of you. Yeah, well, keep you know, keep going there. All right, so you have you have you have Lambert, you have Swan. Uh, was Donnie Shell in that one? I don't know if Donnie Shell was in. That uh, was one. Mike Webster? Mike Webster was in that one. Yes. Um, who who else would have been in that? Well, let me uh, keep talking. I don't I'll, know if I'll, it was Stallworth was in that draft. Stallworth was in that draft. Okay. Yes, he was taken in like the ninth or tenth round. Um. So yeah, it was. There was, I think it was. Five that was Hall was Mel Blunt in that one. Yes, I believe he was. Okay, so there's your there's your five. Yeah, okay, yeah, I think those were the five. Yeah, but yeah, definitely it was it was an incredible draft. The, the Steelers were far ahead. I it just the the probably the the three best teams in football at that time were the Cowboys, Steelers, and the Raiders. Yeah, and all three of them were so far ahead of other teams in terms of scouting. A lot of teams back in the day used to use one company and they would scout for four teams. They would use a service before they actually, and the Steelers and Cowboys were really at the forefront of NFL scouting where they would have their own team of scouts that would get their own draft together. Whereas they, other, you know, they would, other teams would pay for this booklet kind of like what you, you and I used to buy in the grocery store. Right. And they would have, well, this is who they said are the best players. And that's how it was done, not even 50, 60 years ago. And you didn't have a seller cap back then. So you could keep these guys together. 
there there was no way once you drafted a player, if you don't want to let him go, you weren't going to let him go. So it was a lot easier to keep them together. Now, that's just on defense. But we didn't talk about offense. You know, once again, another another great Penn Stater. For those of you, you know, who may not know, I graduate from Penn State. So <laughs> I like to point out the great Penn Staters. Franco Harris, who recently passed away. But as far as Bradshaw goes, and you just – you mentioned a thing that I was going to bring up about the fact that if free agency would have been in play, I don't think Terry Bradshaw goes to the Hall of Fame. Because I think Terry Bradshaw parts ways with Chuck Knoll, probably goes to a different team. The Saints. Maybe the Saints yep. or the Oilers. Yep. Some team down south, and, and there wouldn't be the pressure of winning. And he goes down there, has a blast, yeah. maybe maybe has a few good years, and retires. I, I don't. Chuck Knoll made Terry Bradshaw what he was in those last two Super Bowls, which was the best quarterback in football at that time. The final Super Bowl that they won, uh, the '78 season, where they they beat the Rams in the Super Bowl, that was really Terry at his best. Yeah. And um, when they when they won the first couple Super Bowls, he he was giving the ball to Franco. He's giving the ball to Rocky Blyer. It's it's other guys on the team. Yeah, and those guys were still members of the team. But it became the Super Bowl uh, Super Bowl number four for the Steelers against the Rams that you said. That was Bradshaw, Swan, and Stallworth. That yeah. was their Super Bowl. And Terry Bradshaw, they said in uh, I read the book on the life of Chuck Knoll. Players attribute Knoll's tough behavior on Bradshaw. They said by the time Terry, remember when it, going into the fourth quarter in that game against the Rams, it's a close game. Sure. It's Bradshaw's bombs down to Stallworth at the end that break the game open. And I think it was Stallworth that said, when we got into the huddle at the beginning of the fourth quarter, Bradshaw had total control of that huddle. And he, Stallworth did not believe that the Bradshaw five or six years before that would have been able to handle that type of a situation. And that's one of the beautiful things about sports. You know, some of you are listening to this podcast saying, come on, Scott and Sean, why are you talking about sports? What do we care? But to me, that there's so many life lessons that you can take out of sports. And in life, we're, we're all going to experience uh, setbacks, tragedies, things that we had to overcome. And when you can actually see somebody else do what Terry Bradshaw did, where he was able to persevere and overcome. Whether he wanted to or not, the fact is he did pull something deep within inside himself that he probably didn't think that he had, and he was able to become better and great. And I will I will say this about Terry Bradshaw. To me, if you had to make a, you know, a diagram or a movie of the perfect passing fundamentals, to me that was always Bradshaw. He had the perfect form for a guy who always considers himself to be like a goofy you know, kind of wild Southern boy. Yeah. That guy threw the most perfect pass I think I still to this day have ever seen. I could not right. believe with the the power, the arm power, and just the the revolutions of just the tightest spiral you ever saw. And he threw it perfect every single time. The pass never wobbled coming out of his hand. Right. And some people would say, you know, that he just had the big arm. But there have been other quarterbacks that have played that had that type of arm talent. The, the name that pops to my head is Jeff George. Jeff George is not on my list because Jeff George couldn't win, couldn't get along with his teammates, went from team to team to team. So maybe, Scott, if you're saying, 
what would Terry Bradshaw have been like under free agency? Maybe he ends up being Jeff George. Yeah, very well could be. So anyways, that's, uh, you know, Terry's number five Hall of Famer. Some people would say higher, some people would say lower. But for me on my list, I think that's about right. You know, having right there at number five, you kind of factor in the wins and the, uh, you know, kind of the production. Number four, well, if Terry Bradshaw wasn't the, didn't have the perfect form and you wanted somebody who did, I would say number four on my list, Mr. John Elway had the ideal measurables. If you were going to build an ideal quarterback in a lab, you would create John Elway. Sure. Yeah. And he was, there was no doubt in that 1983 NFL draft that John Elway was the highest rated quarterback. John Elway was the the most gifted running the ball. He had these incredible physical traits, right? He had this incredible arm. He he was incredibly fast, but he he's, he's off the charts intelligent. So he, he's combining all these features where as, as a coach, as a, uh, someone that's in the scouting department, you're drooling off this, over this guy. This is a once-in-a-generation talent that came out, and not only does he go number one overall, and he goes number one, he's going to go to the Colts, number one overall, and nobody wanted to play for the Baltimore Colts at that time. Right. And he... Just says, well, you know what? I'm I'm a good enough athlete where I'm currently in the Yankees minor league system. I'm going to play baseball. I, I just won't play football. Well, he plays one season in the minors and becomes the best player on that team for a guy who only kind of like a Bo Jackson, you know, where he spent a lot more of his time playing on football, concentrating on football than he did on baseball. Here he goes, almost as like. Hey, what are you going to do this summer, John? Yeah, I'm going to go play some baseball. Sure. And you end up being the best player on your team of professionals. Number one prospect in the Yankee organization. Um, just, yeah, I don't think you can't underestimate his abilities as an athlete. And you said the intelligence went to Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a hard, not, not a hard, not, not an easy school to graduate from. So Stanford was always known back then as. The smart kids playing football, but they weren't necessarily successful. Whereas now you got a guy who's 6'3, 200 plus pounds and can throw the ball 70 yards. Right. Um, it's a rarity. And so you walk into the, the NFL. You fen- eventually, they, you know, there's a trade that gets worked out to the Denver Broncos, and, and Elway goes there. And it takes John a while. You know, John, while he has all, all the this ability, it takes him quite a few years till he kind of establishes himself he he's like a lot of other guys where he could come up with a big splash and i i heard someone say that in a way you know he kind of was the darling of espn because espn started right about the same time and they were looking for highlights what john could give you highlights in the early days he wasn't necessarily that consistent quarterback that you wanted out there but if you wanted to see somebody uh you know Either with his arm or with his legs, with a spectacular play, John was going to give it to you. Well, he, I think he, fortunately for him, he was brought in, and the head coach at the time was a guy by the name of Dan Reeves, who was very successful in Denver, unfortunately mm-hmm. never won a Super Bowl. But Dan Reeves was not afraid to be patient with him his rookie season. Just pulling up his, his stats here, he only started 10 games his rookie year, went four and six. Do you offhand remember? who the uh, starting quarterback for the Broncos was? Um, I think I, I – give me a hint because I have a name. 
Was was he a, a longtime veteran at he the time? He played for a long time, yeah. Was Craig Morton still there? He wasn't. The the guy I believe the guy who started for him was was a guy by the name of Steve DeBerg. Yes. Okay. Played for the 49ers, exactly, for the Buccaneers, yeah, sure. Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, he was a well-traveled veteran, I believe. Dan Reeves brought him in because he was a professional. Right. Which but, is how it was done back then. Right. You, you brought in the veteran to kind of groom the younger guy. And I, I think, so DeBerg started like the first part of the season. And then when they felt like Elway had enough of a grasp, he came in probably around, you know, week six, week seven. And then from there, probably started the rest, rest of the way. Okay. Much better way to do it, I think, than they do it today, where guys get thrown to the wolves. And I think a lot of careers get ruined because a guy isn't given enough time to develop as a pro. Not everybody jumps in the professional system the same as everybody else. You may have huge talent, but you may need a little maturing. You may be mature, but you're like Tom Brady was mature. His body had to catch up to his brain. Right. Whereas other guys, they have the talent, but they need to mature at reading a defense. That and that was Patrick thing. Mahomes. You know, Patrick Mahomes, who's the best quarterback in the NFL right now, is one of the rare quarterbacks that sat for an entire year. Sure. Uh, behind Alex Smith. Alex Smith. And, you know, Andy Reid, you know, you know who I former Eagle coach is now the coach of the Chiefs, who the Eagles play on Sunday. Uh, you know, he was very good with that when, when Donovan McNabb was with the Eagles. He did the same thing. You know, Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson. He sat for half the season and then eventually brought uh, Donovan in. in. Uh, that's the, that was the, the traditional way of doing it. And you're right. That is how it was done with Elway. Yeah. And so starting in his second year is where the team was uh, – the, the Denver Broncos were a, a very good team. But it was year three where uh, Elway really started to blossom as, as a quarterback. And then famously in 1986, the famous drive against the Cleveland Browns where he essentially takes them the entire length of the football field, needs a touchdown to win, and gets you a touchdown. It was, that's a question. Might as well ask it to you now. And I, You can think about it. You don't have to answer it right away. Okay. To me, I think when you're talking about the greatest quarterbacks of all time, if you had to pick one quarterback to get you into the end zone, not to get a field goal, but to get you a touchdown to win the game. Who would that quarterback be? And you can answer that at the end of the at the end of the show. Okay, okay. Let me think about it. So you know, John Elway is another quarterback who suffers some some heartbreak. You know, I talk about Jim Kelly gets to the big dance many times, just can't win it. Well, Elway was that guy for a number of years. He he, he got there. You know, Scott talked about under his his coaches uh, Dan Reeves just couldn't quite win the game. And kind of thought of as a bit of a loser. Now, fortunately for him, his career does go into the, to the 90s, and he is able to win two Super Bowls. And I think he is he's number four on my list because of the Super Bowls, where Jim Kelly's number eight because he doesn't win. And you probably, if you simply reverse the victories in the Super Bowl, I probably put Kelly uh, up, you know, right up there with Elway. One could be, uh, you know, Elway might be number eight and Kelly could be number four. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, certainly uh, he ended up, he finished so strong, which is rare for quarterbacks, to actually finish your last three seasons were better than the three seasons before that. And Elway is one of those rare guys who actually, how many quarterbacks retire? I know Peyton Manning retired after winning the Super Bowl, but a guy who, when John Elway ended up retiring, he was 
one of the best games in the Super Bowl ever for a quarterback. He walked, literally walked out on top. So we mentioned about how John, at least in my opinion, may be the most physically gifted quarterback to ever play the game. Okay. In a way that was kind of a detriment for him in the early days because he was so gifted, he probably didn't need to work within a system. And when he started to lose a little bit of that, he started to get dinged up at the end of his career. I think he, and his brain, you know, his, not because he was always intelligent, but his ability to understand football, the, the game starts slowing down for him and he understands how to operate within a system much better than he did in the early days, where before it was the typical, hey, just let John run around and make some plays. Right. And, you know, the end of the Dan Reeves era happened around uh, the early 90s and then they brought in Wade Phillips to to coach the team. And I just don't think Wade Phillips and John Elway gelled to the point where Denver was actually looking to replace Elway. The, and the team started to, they started to go downhill. Uh, there was a quarterback from the UCLA that I remember Elway got hurt, missed the last two games of the season. And I remember the announcer saying that this guy's being brought in as a trial run. Let, let me guess, see if I can get this in. Was it Tommy Maddox? Tommy Maddox is, yeah, that's yeah. exactly who it was. And I remember Tommy Maddox, and they were talking about it, that he's basically auditioning sure. for the, being the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos. I don't know if Elway took offense to that, but he certainly came back with a vengeance. And like I said, his last three seasons were the best of his career. Right, right. So, you know, uh, John Elway, number four on my list. So number three on my list is a player from that same 1983 draft. Okay. In that draft, John Elway goes is the first quarterback taken. Yep. There were seven quarterbacks taken. Yep. Number seven, the last one taken. Number three on my list, Dan Marino. Have you ever watched the 30 for 30? Elway to Marino? Yes, I have. I think that may, if you are a sports fan, Gen Xers, and you do like to watch ESPN's 30 for 30, that may be the best. That may be the best 30 for 30 that they've ever done in their entire series. I sat and watched that thing from beginning to end, and the way that they told the story I thought was brilliant. The same lawyer that represented both guys, and the note-taking that he took was amazing, and it basically tells the whole story for, and then it just the way they have the whole draft play out before your eyes. Thankfully, they glossed over the Eagles' number eight pick, which happened to be Michael, Michael Haddix, Haddix yeah. who holds the distinction of being having the lowest rushing yards per average, uh, you know, rushing yards per carry average in NFL history, folks. History. We're talking a hundred years in the league. So probably the greatest most historical draft in nfl history and the eagles get michael haddix and michael if you're one of our listeners i, I don't want to offend you you, you played in the nfl i never yes. did so yeah. your first round pick more power to you but you know we could have had yeah. Marino. To, to eagles fans you'll always be michael bleeping haddix so <laughs> all right but anyway but yeah so dan marino is is the argument between say the terry bradshaw do you value wins or do you value stats? Because if you want to go by stats, when uh, when Dan Marino hung up the cleats, he's the he, he's the all time greatest quarterback in NFL history. There is a great story that ties Dan Marino into Terry Bradshaw. Okay, are you familiar with it? I am not. So, 1983, Art Rooney Sr., uh, you know the Papa Bear of the Steelers, the owner of the Steelers, sure. He loved Dan Marino. He wanted Dan Marino in the worst Who way. Who went to the University of Pittsburgh. He Correct. went to Pitt. He was a local kid. And he thought, man, he would just be perfect in a Steelers uniform. 
Bradshaw is at the end of his career, and they um, Art Senior wanted Dan Marino. Um, other people in the organization, you know, including Chuck Knoll, didn't feel that they wanted to go defense because the defense had struggled. They'd kind of fallen. All the great players from the seventies either retired or at the end of their careers, and Noel felt that they needed to get some defensive players. Right. I mean, obviously he was he was correct, but Dan Marino ended up being a generational talent. Yes. So Chuck Noel calls Terry Bradshaw. Terry Bradshaw had hurt his elbow at the end of the eighty two season. And he said, Are you gonna play? I need to know. Because if Terry Bradshaw would have retired, the Steelers would have taken Dan Marino. That's that's the way that the story goes. Okay. Bradshaw came back and said, I'm playing next year. So the Steelers end up taking Gabriel Rivera. Senior Sack. Known as Senior Sack. Yeah. They took him with the 21st pick. And then he had a car accident and then he got paralyzed. paralyzed. Yeah. yeah. They said he was just starting to get acclimated to the NFL. He's just starting to make some big mm-hmm. plays. And he gets in this horrific car accident. I think his career, he only played like six or seven games. Right. It's a real tragedy. But I know for Steelers fans, um, and Art Sr. even uh, went to Marino and said, you're going to have a great career, kid. You know. Yeah, because Terry comes back in 83. I mean, he does play, and then he blows his elbow out. He plays in the preseason. Yeah. He tries to rush himself back to get ready for the opening you know, the opening game plays in the preseason, pops something in his elbow, doesn't tell anybody about it, tries to play through the pain. It ends up costing him his career. Yeah. So that was, it wasn't anything done intentionally. It wasn't malicious, but unfortunately that's how close the Steelers were to getting Dan Marino to play for, for uh, Pittsburgh in the eighties. And Dan Marino goes down to Miami, you know, he plays for Don Shula and it's, it's kind of amazing that he never won a Super Bowl. They they just could never build teams around him. They would they would get some good wide receivers in from time to time. You know, much like the San Diego Chargers uh, under Dan Fouts, an incredibly entertaining team to watch. Remember the the you know Mark Duper and uh, Mark Clayton. Mark Clayton was you know he had the had the Marks down there, and he just you know like OJ McDuffie played down there for a little while, mm-hmm. and it, it's it, they were a lot of fun to watch. And you know, Marino was just he. He had this incredible ability to, even though he was slow as molasses, you could not get to him because he had the the fastest re- release, probably of any quarterback in NFL history. Yeah, and Don Shula, who's a you know all time winningest coach, is uh, had the ability to recognize. Uh, it could kind of develop a team around his strengths and weaknesses, uh, and I, I really credit uh, Shula for being. One of those guys who didn't say, "All right, you're going to fit into my system." He saw what he had. He, he reckoned because remember, the Dolphins teams in the '70s. Bob Greasy was your quarterback. Sure, they were all about running the football. It was, it was Larry Zonka and Mercury Morris. Sure. So Don Shula and they were defense. It was it was the uh, Killer Bees mm-hmm. and the No Name defense, the undefeated team. That was that was a defensive football team, and Don Shula going through the with the Colts as a coach. And even before when he was an assistant coach, he was a he was a defensive player as a pro. So he was a defensive coach, defensive minded head coach. Now all of a sudden he gets this new toy in Dan Marino, and now he's chucking the ball more than any other uh team is in football, at least downfield, because 
that was the great thing about the Dolphins is they went deep a lot. Right, right. Yeah, because, you know, I don't know if anyone has ever had a, a stronger arm than Dan Marino. And, you know, you've talked about some other people, you know, like, like Bradshaw having a great arm. And, you know, we talk about Elway having a great arm. But Dan Marino could throw with anybody. Well, that, that 84 season, his second year in the league when he was just 23 years old, in my opinion, if you compare it, you know, like how you adjust things for inflation, mm-hmm. like what things are worth then and what they're worth now, that 1984 season to me is still the greatest season ever by an NFL quarterback because the way I do it is you look at the comparative players at that in that same year. And in 1984, just for example, that 48 touchdown season that he had, that record held for 20-something years in an era when quarterback play just – kept getting the numbers kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger he held that record for over 20 years right not only that but he threw 48 touchdown passes the number two guy 32 that's a plus 16 from number one to number two never been done before and i don't think it'll be ever done again and he won a lot of games it's not as if he was just putting up numbers where oftentimes you'll get a team when they're playing catch up they're losing a lot of games so to try to get back into the game they're going to throw you know he would they were a a winning organization that just always never was quite good enough you know one of the things when i say about quarterbacks back then typically threw the ball downfield a lot more it's rare for a quarterback to average 10 yards per completion today because of so many shorter throws in that year 1984 Dan Marino averaged 14 yards per completion. Per completion, I mean that that's that's you'll never see that happen again. Not not in today's NFL. It just doesn't doesn't exist. And once again, tying it into pop culture, in a lot of ways, Dan Marino was a celebrity. He was doing the oh, Isotoner sure. commercials. He appears in Ace Ventura: Pet Detective uh, in in the 90s. And you know, don't forget, you know, he had a long, productive career in the 90s. Yeah, he was a good-looking guy. Uh, you know, personable, well-spoken knew how to stand in front of a camera and smile and pump those isotoner gloves, man. That was, that was, he was a good pitch man. Yeah, he was. So Dan Marino, number three on my list, number two. So you started this podcast by asking me about to group my seventies quarterbacks. Well, you know, you, you got my, my one quarterback, Terry Bradshaw. Number two is who the player that I think is the, is the greatest player of the seventies. That'd be Roger Staubach from the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. Roger the Dodger, or Captain Comeback, as he was known back in the day. Um, hard, hard to argue that. And I'm uh, again, it kind of pains me that you have two Cowboys in this in this list because I'm objective. You know, even though no, no, yeah. I, but I I agree with you. Yeah, I do. I agree with you, Roger Stallback. He was as close to today's quarterback than any other quarterback of his era. Yeah, he was known between him and Fran Tarkenton. They were uh, Fran Tarkenton was a scrambler to the point where he was. They always considered him out of control. Right. Roger Stallback somehow was able to free spirit himself enough because Tom Landry was known as a very strict disciplinarian, mm-hmm. a guy who very rigid. It's got to be a certain way, but yet he kind of let Stallback do his own thing, and I think he recognized the brilliance in Stallback. And the fact that yeah he's going to run around and stuff, but he's a winner. Bottom line is he's a winner, and and he he, he did it within the offense. So I, I don't think you can talk about Roger Staubach with without talking about a little bit of who he was as a person, about his history. So you know Roger plays at the Naval Academy, 
And, you know, he had to serve his time in the military before he was allowed to come to the NFL. You know, very, you know, very, uh, you know, honorable service. Um, he's highly anticipated, you know, comes in. And even then, he doesn't play right away. Doesn't the term Hail Mary come from it Roger does. Staubach? It comes from Roger Staubach. Because of his mom? I believe because his, bomb. Was, because his mom was such a devout Catholic, she used to sit there and watch him play with rosary beads in her hands. And she would pray. I, I didn't know that story. She would pray while he was, while she would watch the games on television. And that's from the, because she was Catholic, okay. that's where the Hail Mary kind of came from. Well, Roger Roger was known as as the, uh, the the this clean player, right? I mean, he was he was the all American boy. You know, he's 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 a military man. He's a strong Christian. You know, he was kind of a goody two shoes. And I remember that there was always the comparison drawn between him and like like a Joe Namath. You know, Joe Namath was the playboy, right? And Roger Staubach was the family man, and he was he was very much about the family values, and uh, that and he was Captain America on America's team. Well, I think Roger Staubach is the reason why you see so many Cowboys fans nationwide, because I think there were a lot of people that were enamored by his style of play because it was unique and he was able to win so many games. He, I think he has one of, if not the highest winning percentage of the quarterbacks on your list. And the fact that he was able to do it and he was this clean cut guy. Yeah. He was a role model that people could really, you know, identify with or appreciate. And I think he was a big reason why there were so many, uh, Cowboys fans from across the country. It's kind of like the Notre Dame fans, you know, because Notre Dame pulled from so many different cities and towns. It wasn't a local college that people followed. It became a national thing. It, it kind of people just kind of grasp onto that. I don't know imagination of what they imagined, and I think a lot of people saw Roger Staubach and became Cowboys fans because of him. I would say in the early days of the NFL, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, the NFL was brutal. Even in the 70s, it was a brutal sport, and there's probably a lot of parents that didn't really want their kids playing football. And, you know, this was a a rough-tumble business to get into, and then suddenly you have, you know, this clean-cut, you know, everybody's All-American Roger Stallback, and I I think he had a lot to do with, with the NFL becoming more popular, at least going mainstream. And, and I do think you're right. It's because it was easy for the NFL to market behind a Roger Stallback. Okay. All right. So, and, and, but also, like, so that's him as a person, but as a player. I mean, you know, Scott says, you know, he's got these incredible numbers. He was a winner. He was a Super Bowl champion. He probably retired way too early. You know, uh, he probably had a lot left in the tank. Well, he, he did, and he really disappointed Landry. Landry wanted him to come back for at least another year or two. And the the year after he retires is the year the Eagles go to the Super Bowl and sure. they beat Danny, Danny White, White yeah. and the Cowboys in the NFC Championship yeah. game. And I've thought about that as to if Roger Stallback is still the quarterback of the 1980 Cowboys, do the Eagles get past the uh, you know the Cowboys? The Cowboys were more talented than the Eagles. Sure, at that particular time, Eagles caught him at the at the right moment. It was kind of a perfect storm season for for the Birds, but. Uh, I don't know. Had Stallback still been around, he would have been 38 
which was really old for a quarterback. It back was then. back then, but that's uh, part of the reason he played into that age is because he gets such a late start right. when he finally joined the NFL. So Roger Staubach, uh, number two on my list. Hey everyone, it's Scott from the Gen X Playback Show. I guess we'll take this time now to go to intermission for this week on our conversation on our of our favorite Gen X quarterbacks. Hopefully you're enjoying this conversation. I know we like to try and stay diverse in, in the topics that we talk about. And sports sometimes takes a backseat, but as you Gen Xers know, sports really became came into prominence with the development of channels like ESPN and coverage of sporting events just became more frequent and more popular. The popularity of sports with the Gen Xers, uh, really sports kind of came into the forefront during our era of the Gen X time between the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So hopefully you're enjoying this conversation on the on who we feel are the best quarterbacks of that era. So when we come back next week, Sean will go through his honorable mentions and then talk about his number one choice. There's um, some forgotten names that maybe you haven't remembered or haven't thought about for many, many years that we're going to talk about as well next week. We really thank you for listening to uh, the Gen X Playback Show and Hopefully you're enjoying this conversation, and we'll finish it off next week. Our favorite Gen X quarterbacks of all time. We'll talk to you soon. For Gen X Playback, I'm Scott. Take care.